Is creation important? Yes. The narratives of Genesis 1 and 2 declare that God has created everything, and that everything he has created is good, very good. But since the advent of the modern scientific enterprise, beginning in the early 17th century with Kepler's discovery of planetary laws and Galileo's discovery of Jupiter's moons, the Church has increasingly struggled to maintain her cultural witness regarding the goodness of creation and how it reveals the glory and providence of God. Kepler and Galileo were Christians, and they certainly believed their discoveries showed forth God's glory. But the inadvertent consequences of describing the universe in mathematical and mechanical terms initiated a revolution in our understanding of the heavens and the earth that slowly eroded away in the minds of many the idea of God's providential care and oversight of his creation. Today, perhaps we have become too familiar with Genesis, too familiar with birds and their wondrous songs and radiant colors, too familiar with the stately beauty of trees and too familiar with the glistening, glorious enigma of stars. Maybe we have become so familiar with nature in general that we hardly notice it anymore. In our taking Genesis and creation for granted, we have perhaps uncritically acquiesced to modern scientific materialism and have inadvertently reduced conversations about Genesis and the cosmos to questions about the age of everything. But what is Genesis specifically revealing to us? What does nature, general revelation, tell us? What are we missing? Today, we struggle with issues like environmentalism, global warming, personhood, and how to reconcile the Bible with science. The Church has struggled with these issues largely because we have handed over the domain of nature to science. In social media, in books, in television programs, in educational videos, in schools and universities, a secular scientific worldview of the natural world has become the dominant paradigm of our time, formerly known as philosophical naturalism, or more colloquially as scientism. As Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland notes, Scientism is in the air we breathe. We consider it both normal and essential. But he says, very few people are aware of what it does to a culture and to the church. It puts Christian claims outside the plausibility structure of what people generally consider reasonable and rational, which has led to a number of shifts in how our culture perceives reality. Moreland also observes that as the ideas that constitute scientism have become more pervasive in our culture, the Western world has turned increasingly secular, and the power centers of culture, the universities, the media and entertainment industry, the Supreme Court, have come increasingly to regard religion as a private superstition. It is no surprise, then, that when our children go to college, more and more of them are just giving up on Christianity. In relation to creation, what about questions of beauty, of purpose, and of meaning? Who speaks for Earth, as Carl Sagan asks in his Cosmos series? Who speaks for the unborn? Who speaks for the trees, the birds, the stars, the universe? Radical environmentalism, science, politicians? On today's special episode of Good Heavens, Dan talks with his former professor at Houston Baptist University, Dr. Holly Ordway, about the wonders of creation as seen through the mind and imagination of one of the most influential writers of the last century, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Holly shares with us how Tolkien's imaginative stories can help us clean our windows and allow us to see afresh creation in all its resplendent glory. Consider just as a small example a letter that Tolkien received shortly after the publication of The Lord of the Rings from a gentleman who described himself as an unbeliever. Tolkien says that the man told him, quote, You create a world in which some sort of faith seems to be everywhere, without a visible source, like light from an invisible lamp." End quote. Tolkien's writings, in a myriad of different ways, do shine forth the warm, capacious grace of the Savior he knew so well. So join Holly and Dan on this episode of Good Heavens for a fascinating tour through the mind, imagination, and times of J.R.R. Tolkien. Our guest today, Dr. Holly Ordway, is professor of English and a faculty member in the MA in Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is the author of Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, an Integrated Approach to Defending the Faith from Emmaus Road in 2017, and Not God's Type, an Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms on Ignatius in 2014. She is also a published poet and a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. 
Her academic work focuses on imaginative and literary apologetics and on the writings of the Inklings, especially C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Her current book project is Tolkien's Modern Sources, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. Her website is hollyordway.com. Well, hello, Holly Ordway. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing very well and very pleased to be able to come in and talk to you on your podcast. Yes, it's been amazing. Uh, Michael Ward, Michael, my, you were one of my former professors at HBU, and so was Michael, and I would say that you guys were my uh, writing mentors that helped take my writing and just being a better human to another level. And you stuck with me, and I appreciate that, and so thank you. Well, it is one of the great joys um, of, of teaching and special teaching that we do here at HBU is to see this kind of thing happen where we, we teach our students, we want them to go out and to do good work in the world. Um, yeah. and, and it's so gratifying and encouraging to see that happen. And so yeah. it's really quite a treat to say, here is one of our graduates from the program, um, and here he is doing good work, and I get to be on his podcast and in a book that he's co-editing. I mean, golly, this is... This is <laughs> Really nice. <laughs> well, and, and you know, at HBU and the program, the apologetics program there, it's uh, it's culturally relevant. It's it's absolutely. I mean, there's a, a professional journal that's been put out, the Unexpected Journal by graduate students. People are uh, Rebecca Valerius is has been a part of a, a book now that's coming out. We're doing a book. I mean, there everybody that has gone through this program is doing something and is excited about doing something. And so there's really something there that God seems to be doing. It's really wonderful. And certainly one of the things that I enjoy about the program is that mentoring. Um, yeah. Because I teach so many courses in the cultural track, I, you know, from the intro writing course you know, to cultural art courses within it to the other writing courses to the capstone course, I'm doing so much work with my students that I get the opportunity to see them grow, to guide them, to help them discover what their interests are, and then one of the things I really enjoy is finding ways to do like you have, Dan, to, to help them guide that interest into ways that that they can contribute, that they yeah. can put their own mark in the world. Right. And uh, in this case, you know, you had an existing interest in Michael Ward's work with Planet Narnia and, uh, you know, just ran with it and, and really t making the most of the way that you could have, you know, two mentors within the program. And, you know, we're really just so pleased to see that sort of thing happen. And, and really, I see that with a lot of our, our students doing mm -hmm. in very different ways. Um, you know, our current crop of students are going to be doing exciting things in, you know, a year, two years, five years yeah. from now. Yeah, and the cadre is exceptional. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's world class. It's top of the line. It's where culture is engaging Christianity right now. I mean, this is a an essential voice. It's mission control. <laughs> <laughs> Houston is mission control. Anyway, so thank you for. It was so surprising for you to to find out for me to find out from Michael, who was in Oxford when he told me. Uh, that you were coming to Weatherford, Texas to speak at Weatherford College, which is only 20 minutes from my house. <laughs> so I said, i got to get a hold of her and see if she wants to do a podcast. So thank you for agreeing to do this. But I do want to um, take some time to talk about what you're doing, which is very exciting. Um, part of this has to do with the essay that you've contributed to the story of the cosmos, and part of this is your professional work outside of HBU, is your writing about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, your book, so we can, it kind of, the two things kind of coalesce together because in your book, you, in, in, in our book, you write an essay about the Silmarillion, which is Tolkien's Middle Earth creation narrative. Uh, and he didn't see that published in his lifetime, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, it, it was really his life's work, this, this giant, um, what we call um, the legendarium, because mm -hmm. he wrote this vast body of stories starting from about, 1916, 1918, um, you know, the very earliest versions of the legendarium, you know, and he was still tinkering with it um, at, his, at his death. So it's literally a life's work for him. And he wrote other stories, you know, The Lord of the Rings is an, is an episode, in a sense, from the legendarium. And a lot of the stories that are mentioned in The Lord of the Rings, you know, have the story of, of um, the Silmarils is mentioned, you know, the lights that in, in Galadriel's file and things like that. There are these hints. We have the, uh, the tale of Baron and Luthien that's mentioned. Mm -hmm. And all of these things, they, they give this depth and resonance to The Lord of the Rings. But Tolkien had also written them, um, and he wanted very much to see this published. Uh, but there were various reasons why that didn't come come into play. Um, 
you know, publishing constraints, you know, paper shortages, right. um, changing audiences, and the fact that he never could quite finish it. Mm -hmm. He was a perfectionist, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. he owes a great, and he admitted very freely um, that he owed a great debt to C.S. Lewis yeah. for the constant pressure to finish The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and he didn't have that kind of pressure to finish the whole body of the Silmarillion. And so it was his son, Christopher, who ended up producing what we now see as the book called The Silmarillion, mm -hmm. who, after his father's death, um, went back in and selected certain tales and you know pulled them together, edited them to make them into a, a finished narrative. Because many of these had multiple versions. Many of the tales hadn't been finished. Mm -hmm. um, Christopher brought them all together so we have a readable text but, of course, that isn't the definitive, the Silmarillion, because there's all this other material. Yeah. And so Christopher Tolkien has literally put in his life's work to bring all of his father's writings into print with the 10-volume um, um, uh, um, History of Middle-Earth, um, with everything that his father has written in all the different versions of it, and you know, bringing out um, individual volumes so that people can read the stories you know, not, not having them split amongst ten volumes, but read, mm -hmm. say, Baron and Luthien, or the most recent one, The Fall of Gondolin. Mm -hmm. um, and this is such a great thing that Christopher has done because it makes the tales of the larger legendarium um, accessible to readers who would love yeah. to read them but aren't able to go through you right. know, all those massive thousands and thousands of pages of, of draft notes. And he saw, I know, he saw Baron and, Luth Baron and Luthien, correct, um, as... Uh, he and his wife, correct? Yes, and in fact, that's on their gravestone. Um, yeah. And he identifies himself as Baron and his wife Edith as Luthien. Mm -hmm. And one of the key images of the tale of Baron Luthien is Luthien dancing um, in, a, in a woodland grove. And that is, is, a, is a version of his wife Edith dancing for him um, when they were first married. Oh. And so there's a real, there's a, a definite personal connection there. And so I think, uh, so in your essays... In the, in the essay in the book, you, your focus is going into Tolkien's imagination through the Silmarillion and then coming out with a deeper appreciation for creation. Uh, Tolkien, obviously, I mean, Lewis knew this, but most people know this, that Tolkien, I, I know when Lord of the Rings first came out, people were thinking it was some kind of literal allegory and finding connections that Tolkien never intended. But I think what is prevalent throughout. I know when I read Lord of the Rings from when I was at HBU with Michael and um, that what struck me going through it was it as a cosmology in a sense, which is what the Silmaril is. It's a cosmogony. It's a, a story of beginnings and uh, the song and the music that is imparted uh, like Job in the beginning of Job. Where were you when I created the earth, found, founded the earth and all the sons of God shouted for joy and all the, all the angels sang together? And so for Tolkien, it seemed like there was a, a connection. He observed creation in a way that, that was perhaps in the way that creation was intended to be observed, not possessed, not controlled, uh, not destroyed or pragmatic for pragmatic and utilitarian purposes, nature as it is. And I think that's what's so endearing about his writings is that in every and everything that I've read, he seems to have this intimate connection with, with nature. I mean, you don't have to go into a, I mean, Lord of the Rings is fantasy, mythical, but it's very earthy mm. as well. Light, trees, stars, music, song. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about the importance of engaging Tolkien's imagination so that we can better appreciate our own creation? How do you see that? Well, that comes into something that I that I talk about in the chapter in the story of the cosmos, which is uh, Tolkien's idea of recovery as a key function of fantasy, and this is something that comes from his um, essay on fairy stories, which is a very mm. very important essay. And in that story, in that essay, he talks about the different things that uh, a fairy tale, a fantasy story, does: recovery, escape, and consolation. And one of the things that uh, that a good fantasy story will do is it will allow us to see things fresh. So we go, we re-enter into the world of the fantasy story. We see, you know, for instance, the Middle Earth. We see the, the Ents, the walking trees. We see the, you know, the majestic landscapes. We see this, this um, you know, fantastic, dramatic world. 
And then when we come out of that world and we look at our own world, what, what Tolkien called primary, the primary world, then we can often see it more clearly. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've really admired the Ents and, and seen the way that, you know, Treebeard tree tree is the shepherd of the trees, you know, you, you come and you look at that pine tree in your backyard and you think, wow, trees are really kind of extraordinary. Yes, they are. Yeah. And you can p- picture it like, well, what if, what if it said, ooh, here to me one morning? <laughs> and this is the kind of thing that Tolkien's getting at, that the, the very strangeness and distance of the fantasy story kind of refreshes us. Um, it allows our imagination to kind of be, to heal, be healed or renewed so that we stop being, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever about the things that we see in our, in our ordinary yeah, world. Yeah. In 19, I, think, I just read a letter this morning from him. Uh, in 1962, he's describing to someone uh, the inspiration behind how he wrote his shorter work, Leaf by Nickel. And in the, it's, it's, very, it's a wonderful explanation. And in the midst of the explanation, you mentioned trees. Uh, he noticed there was, a, there was a huge poplar tree across the way from him that he could see from his office or bedroom window. And the lady in whose yard it was, uh, was wanted it to be cut down. And Tolkien was very concerned about this because it was a beautiful tree. And in the midst of describing this, he has a parenthetical insertion about what was going on. And he says, too often the hate, in this case of the tree, is irrational, a fear of anything large and alive and not easily tamed or destroyed, though it may clothe itself in pseudo-rational terms. And I thought that's a great sentence of the attitude of modernity toward nature. What do you think? I think absolutely. And the thing with with Tolkien, um, he had a very nuanced attitude towards things like technology and industry. And this is something that I get at in my new book when I'm I'm looking at, you know, as as modern reading, um, but I'm looking also at the way that he engages with the modern world, that he wasn't stuck in the mud. He wasn't, you know, simply backward looking. Mm -hmm. He was reading quite a lot of modern literature. And and one of the things I discovered is that he had a, a... nuanced view of technology. Um, for instance, he had no objection to cars. In fact, he says that he enjoyed driving them and enjoyed mm-hmm. riding in them. Um, but what he objected to, and he says this in an interview, he says, I like cars, but I, I, I despise destructive road builders. Um, mm-hmm. And he lived during a time when the ring road was being built around Oxford in a mm-hmm. absolutely just destructive you know, way, it blasted out a lot of the um, ancient neighborhood of Jericho, um, you know, and even now when we go, if you visit Oxford now, you don't realize what it was like in Tolkien's time, because since Tolkien's time, they've done things like institute green belts, and a lot has been recovered and improved, mm-hmm. but in his time, they were blasting out, chopping down trees and blasting out roads without any real consideration for the landscape, for the neighborhoods, for the history of it. And that was the kind of thing that he really and very rightly objected to because roads have a purpose, but his whole view was we need to be doing things properly. We need to have a respect for the environment, for living things, um, and and not not just letting the machine drive everything. Right. He and Lewis, I know, love to go on something that's kind of we don't even think about anymore. Long walks, just walking through the countryside, which you, it's a whole different experience than uh, driving through the countryside in a car. And that certainly informed his, his love of nature as well. Absolutely. In fact, there's a, there's a great anecdote. Um, he would go on walking tours with Lewis, but he would drive Lewis crazy um, <laughs> because Lewis and his brother Warney liked to walk very fast. Oh. They liked to have this really brisk walk, and then they would get someplace and they would sit down and they would just sit in the sunshine and admire the scenery, but they wanted to walk fast and then stop. But Tolkien, on the other hand, would meander and every five feet, oh, look at that tree, look at that butterfly, let me tell you the natural history of this little flower. Oh. And, and it drove Lewis mad because it, <laughs> the pace was so slow and rambling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but it just goes to show that, that Tolkien was very interested in the natural world. Um, Clyde, um, Clyde Kilby recalls uh, visiting Tolkien um, in his home uh, in the latter years of Tolkien's life and, and Tolkien taking him around the garden and being able to tell him scientific information about every tree, every flower, every plant in the garden. Yeah. So Tolkien was quite a keen natural historian mm-hmm. and very interested in that and interested in the science of it yeah. as well as the beauty of it. Um, now, it's interesting because a lot of times people that are new to Tolkien's work uh, discover that he was Catholic 
and assume a lot of things about it and compare it sometimes to Lewis's imaginative works in the Narnia Chronicles. But uh, could you nuance out the difference between what Tolkien, I mean, because he was not fond of allegory and he would say repeatedly that Rings is not allegorical, but yet it seemed to breathe his Catholicism and his faith anyway. Um, he got a letter, and I, I'll kind of read this short little intro that he got from a letter from a gentleman after, sometime after Lord of the Rings came out. And uh, the man he, who said, who classified himself as an unbeliever, or at best a man of belatedly and dimly, dimly dawning religious feeling. And he says, the man said to Tolkien about Lord of the Rings that you create a world in which some sort of faith seems to be everywhere without a visible source, like light from an invisible lamp. I think that's an excellent description of the of how it can be representative of Christianity without allegorizing Christianity. What do you say? Well, very much so. And in fact, I use that quote as an epigraph in my memoir, my conversion memoir, Not God's Type. Oh. <laughs> so uh, that, that particular bit, you know. That's right. I remember that. That's right. Maybe yeah. that's where I got it from. <laughs> so, yeah. And so this, there's a lot of interesting things going on with this, with this question, Dan, um, because one of them is that indeed uh, Tolkien's faith deeply imbues everything that he writes. And, it's a complex topic because Tolkien says some quite contradictory things in different times and different places, um, partly because he, he had a, a rhetorical habit of hyperbole and he was a bit crotchety at times. So if you said, oh, how wonderful it is the sky is blue, and he was a little bit annoyed by you, he might say, well, actually, have you noticed there's a little touch of cloud there? And he would push back because um, he, he just that was just his style. Yeah, um, and okay. I think we have to take that into account when we read the sometimes quite conflicting things that he says. Um, but he does consistently, in one way or another, say that The Lord of the Rings is a, is a Christian work. And I think there's one quote that is perfect for that. And he says, The Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously in the writing, but consciously in the revision. Mm. And he goes on to say, and that is why... I cut out all of the religious references. Mm. And, it's, and, it, and it can kind of take you back at first because he says it's deliberately religious and Catholic. So therefore I took out, and I, to make it that way, I cut out all the religious references. Say mm. what? Yeah. And, he, and you would, since there are no religious references overtly in the book, you would think that maybe it was overtly Christian at the beginning, but then he revised it, but it's the other way around. And I think this gives us a clue to the way that Tolkien viewed infusing his his faith in his work because first of all it came simply from his own deep devout lifelong committed mm -hmm. faith mm -hmm. um he he was you know to use walter hooper's phrase for c.s lewis he was himself a thoroughly converted man you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. from from boyhood he was deeply mm -hmm. devout and that came through but he also he's presenting his the the, the ideas of the faith implicitly um, he's doing it through imagery he's doing it through the structure of the story um, and if you read his essay on fairy stories about the the structure the way that the the happy ending is is a uh, is reflective of the of the crucifixion and the resurrection mm -hmm. you know all of this is implicit in the structure and the bones of the story and he removes any overt references first of all because the story is set in a pre-christian era right. you know but also because those things would be distracting. They, they would maybe focus attention wrongly. Instead, he has this implicit, you know, implicit story. So, for instance, we have so many images of Christ in The Lord of the Rings. Right. But we don't have a single Christ figure. Like, we don't have an Aslan, you know, Yeah, equivalent. it's not Boromir. It's not Frodo. It's not uh, any of those, well, per it's, se. It's all of them. It's some of them in different ways. So, for instance, um, Frodo is a... Is a Definitely a type of Christ as the suffering servant, mm -hmm. um, very much so. But Aragorn is a type of Christ the king. Yeah. And in Gandalf, we have Christ's resurrection. Yeah. So we have all these different facets um, that, that together give you images of who Christ is. But there's no single figure that's the Christological focus the way that it is in Narnia. And that's neither better nor worse. Mm -hmm. It's simply different. Um, so he's, he's taking a, a more diffracted and diffuse approach to presenting the faith, um, and that's why you get the Lord of the Rings being so deeply Christian, but not 
overtly so. So it's it's kind of in a way the way he saw, um, as Romans says, nature revealing God's invisible attributes, um, not directly with words, as Psalm 19 says. There is no voice, but their line has gone out throughout the whole earth. And yeah. so Middle Earth is the line of providential grace and and, and divine hiddenness, if you want to use it that way, is hidden throughout, hidden, tacitly hidden throughout, if you're looking for it. Absolutely. Um, one of the things, one of my favorite uh, scenes is actually not in, um, well, this is more, this is more evident, is more in The Hobbit. And I know that was another offshoot, <laughs> offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot, uh, but where Gandalf has come to the village and um, sort of tasked Frodo, not telling Frodo he has to take the ring but encouraging him and saying that you were meant to find it. And so he's kind of given his task by Gandalf without Gandalf saying, go and do this. But then he gets to the Council of Elrond, and what does Frodo do? He volunteers. Yeah. So that's a great way, I think, of showing how – that's a great argument for you know free will and determinism, I think, is because <clears throat> Frodo would never at any time is he told what he has to do. But with everything going on, you, you see a providential guiding, get rid of this. Yeah, take it and do something with it that seems to be beyond Gandalf, beyond Frodo, beyond the hobbits, something that Sauron doesn't even recognize is going on subterranean, somewhere below the scenes is guiding the whole process. You see that, for instance, in in the culmination of the story, because throughout the whole story, you have repeated instances of um, pity and mercy. Yeah. And at one point, Frodo says to to Gandalf, he's really frustrated about Gollum, and he says, oh, what a pity that that, that Bilbo didn't stab that vile creature when he had the chance. And Gandalf says, no, pity was what stayed his hand, pity and mercy not to strike without need. And, And it turns out that because of Bilbo's act of pity, of mercy, to Gollum, and then subsequently Frodo remembering that and also sparing Gollum, mm. and Sam also having the opportunity to kill Gollum and not doing it. Because of that, at the very end, Frodo fails in the quest. And this is something a lot of readers of The Lord of the Rings sort of overlook. He fails. He gets all the way to Mount Doom and he refuses to give up the ring yeah. because his will has been broken. And Tolkien in a letter is very clear that this this is not... Frodo's fault. He wasn't strong enough for what he was carrying, and it broke him. But providentially, because of his and Sam's and Bilbo's actions of pity, Gollum is there and is able to to, to yeah. act, and so the quest is saved. So here again, we have that hand of providence working through individual acts of pity and mercy, yeah. and all done very subtly, but with a very powerful statement of this is the operation of grace yeah and that just it's a wonderful uh, attestation of you know loving your enemies i mean and in, 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 without saying it yeah you know, it's not like the crete the the hobbits have to go you know in the in the text of hobbiton it says in, you know, <laughs> hobbiton 12 6 or whatever it says to love your enemies it's not like that you know um and that's why and now when you see this more deeply you can see why tolkien did not like the narnia chronicles because he thought lewis was being too too overt even though Lewis would say suppositional allegory, he wouldn't call Narnia exactly an allegory. But you could see, at least beginning to see, the dialectical tension between the way those two wrote stuff. Well, this is actually a little bit more complicated than most people realize. Um, and there's a couple of features in there. One is that, that Tolkien, Tolkien says that he despises allegory, uh, but he doesn't. Because he himself does allegory. I mean, you mentioned Leaf by Niggle. Yeah. Leaf by Niggle is an allegory. Smith of Wanton Major is an allegory. And in a letter, um, uh, Tolkien even provides the key to the allegory of Smith of Wanton Major. He explains, this is what this is, this is what oh, this okay. is. Um, he does an al- a very direct allegory um, in the opening of his, of his lecture and essay, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics. Yeah. So Tolkien was perfectly willing to use allegory when it suited him. In the case of his vehement rejection of allegory, rhetorically it serves an important purpose because he, the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. And after it came out, he was getting a lot of probably American, probably yeah. <laughs> very foolish fan mail right. where people were just, they were convinced that they found the allegorical key and it's just not that kind of book. And they were sending all these silly letters. And I think Tolkien took the opportunity in the forward to the second edition, that's where he says this, to preempt more silliness. No, the orcs are not communists. Says <laughs> yeah. so it doesn't make any sense to say the orcs are communists any more than it would say that communists are orcs. You know, right. the, you know. So he's he's trying to make a very strong claim 
to stop people saying silly things about that particular book. Mm. But because of Tolkien's, again, his rhetorical style, he likes to say things with a, a dash of hyperbole. And so he says, I cordially loathe allegory and always have in all its manifestations. Well, that's a rhetorical move. He, yeah. he actually doesn't. Okay. So that we have to nuance that a little bit. You know, the Lord of the Rings is not allegory, but it has applicability. That's his term. Yeah. Um, and then coming to the Chronicles of Narnia, again, it's a little bit more complex because we don't know that Tolkien read or heard all of them. He just thought it wouldn't do, but that doesn't mean he didn't read it. Well, that's more complicated than that. Oh, yeah. Um, because he heard at least the first part of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, from Lewis. Um, he may or may not have read it. Um, he may or may not even have got the whole thing. Um, specifically, he didn't like the way that, at least in the beginning part of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis was bringing in all these different myths, all these different things, yeah. fawns, this, that, and that. This, this is just not Tolkien's style. He also doesn't really approve of the way that he brings in the fawn, because the fawn in in you know Greek and Roman mythology is a, is a very sexual figure, mm -hmm. and it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit weird to have that in a children's story, you know, having tea with a little girl, and yeah. and Tolkien I think just didn't didn't like that element of it. And uh, so he may well not have himself even carried on anymore. Um, I think if he did, he would have, and maybe he did and maybe he changed his mind, um, he would have seen, for instance, the way that in Prince Caspian, Lewis actually does kind of address the weirdness of having, say, Bacchus and the, mm -hmm. the fawns. But I think it's worth noting that although Tolkien says that the Narnia books were outside the range of his imaginative sympathy, he says in a letter, that they are good in their kind. Hmm. Um, and he kept them on his shelves for his grandchildren to read. Oh, wow. What letter is that? Do you know what, uh, what year offhand. that was? Okay. Um, uh, but it re really is important to note, he himself didn't care for them, but he was willing to say that, you know, other people might. They're good. He, just, he didn't object to people reading them, and he was willing to have them on hand. His, his granddaughter, Joanna, remembered that the Narnia books were on the shelves when they went to visit Grammy and Grandpa. So he he was happy to have his grandchildren read them. That's great. So I think again, this is more nuance. Again, we have Tolkien the curmudgeon. Yeah. You know, this this mishmash, this just won't do. Right. But he's reacting to a very specific aspect of a portion of one of the books. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and too many people have taken that specific reaction, not knowing that it was his own particular taste, not knowing his habit for hyperbole, and they've generalized it into, oh, he hated Narnia, which is simply not the case. Okay. Well, that's uh, thank you for clarifying that because that was a uh, misconception I've carried with me for a long time. <laughs> a lot of people have that, yeah. I mean, it's it's the oft-quoted one that you see when you hear of Inklings and you, you find people find out Tolkien and Lewis got along. Well, what did they think of each other's work and blah, 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 and you see that quote come up and you're like, oh, he didn't like it. Um, but that's not the case. So thank you for setting that, uh, that clear. But... One of the things that that fascinated me about Tolkien when I was learning him when I did uh, Rings with Michael was his how he got introduced to language at a young age. He loved the Welsh language yep. that he saw on the sides of coal trucks. So he would take trips through town on the trains and he would see these wonderfully enigmatic words that struck him and and he it almost like that was his epiphany of I want to be a philologist. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what, what, how that was important to how he came and approached creation and reality and stories? Well, certainly language was, was centrally important to him. Um, and it's often one of the things that they said about the Lord of the Rings is that he, that he wrote the whole legendarium in order to have people to speak his invented languages. Yeah. Um, and that's a little bit of an exaggeration because he was always a storyteller. Um, uh -huh. But it's not much of an exaggeration because from even childhood, he invented languages as, as a boy, yeah. um, several different ones. Mm -hmm. And he just was fascinated by the way that language worked. Um, and in, in fact, he, he very easily got distracted. Um, you know, when he was in a, uh, you know, before he went to college, when he was at St. Edward's school, he got distracted, like learning Gothic, learning Finnish. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he describes it as if, you know, finding a new vintage, a new flavor, he could yeah. become almost intoxicated by these new languages, and then he wouldn't study for his exams because he was, you know, learning some, <laughs> some language. language. Yeah, right. uh, so he really was fascinated by the way the languages worked, and that obviously motivated him to study languages, um, and he, he had a very early gift in it. Although he wasn't originally um, enrolled at Oxford 
in languages. He, um, I, f- I forget what the the first what he was first um, starting in, but his paper on languages was so absolutely top notch that that the professor there said we'd we'd love to have you come over and, and do you know philology with us, and they and they, they did that, hmm. and that you know carried him on. His first job after he got out of the war um, was to uh, research etymologies for the Oxford English Dictionary. So he used to joke. Ah, the Oxford Dictionary. I wrote that. <laughs> just, his, are there entries with his name on it? Well, there no, they don't put names on it, but we do know um, there's a very good book called Ring of Words. Okay. Um, and it's uh, uh, by um, Peter Gulliver and um, two other uh, scholars whose names are escaping me. I apologize to them. Um, it's an excellent book on the way that Tolkien uh, – his work at the Oxford English Dictionary, and his his uh, work was on the W's. So he did words like okay. walrus and wampum. How um, wonderful! <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he was extremely good at it, and um, and it you know made its way into the dictionary. That's um, fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, now my fascination with Tolkien has has deepened just in the last couple of days uh, after I read Leaf by Niggle, and uh, <clears throat> as I was prowling around trying to when I first started reading it immediately without any notes or any sort of background except for what little I know I was struck by its seemingly autobiographical nature mm. to some degree and I went back through the letters to see what references I could find to, to leaf and in I think it was in 1954 he was describing something some, he was describing Nigel to somebody he says my purgatorial story to make visible and physical the effects of sin or misused free will by men. And I thought, well, I'm sort of justified in my assumptions, <laughs> but I wanted to read just a little passage to you and have you comment on it in terms of the sub-creator, because you know, you're know you talking a lot about arts and creating. Um, one of the things I loved about working with you was just helping us develop our creative writing skills. Um, but that writing is, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you are creating, whether you're painting or you're doing music or you, you used to fence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a creating, it's a creation. And and I thought that this quote was could systematically speak to the artist as a professional because in a utilitarian society such as ours, what's the use of art? <laughs> right. It's the Reepicheep quote when he talks to Captain Drinian as they're about to go into the Black Island or the Dark Island. <laughs> the captain says, what's the use? And Reepicheep scolds him, use, Captain, <laughs> use. <laughs> and I, I think it's a wonderful quote about Tolkien's struggle with the practical everyday affairs of of a very utilitarian society that hates trees and nature and doesn't appreciate art. And and so he he says, he's talking, this is the character of Niggle, and he says, uh, he tried several days not to bother about other things, but there came a tremendous crop of interruptions. Things went wrong in his house. He had to go and serve on a jury in the town. A distant friend fell ill, Mr. Parrish, his neighbor, was laid up with lumbago, and visitors kept coming in. It was springtime, and they all wanted free tea in the country. And Niggle lives in a pleasant house, miles away from town. He cursed them in his heart, but he could not deny that he had invited them himself. He tried to harden his heart, but it was not a success. There were many things he had not the face to say no to, whether they thought them duties or not. There were some things he was compelled to do, whether whatever he thought. Some visitors hinted that his garden was rather neglected, and then he might get a visit from the inspector. <laughs> I mean, that that seems to me the mind of an artist in a nutshell. I'm trying to work on my stuff, <laughs> and life keeps happening to me. What use is that? But I, I found it tremendously encouraging, especially from someone who's trying to make a living writing uh, or whatever artistry that you're engaged in. Do you feel that's an accurate portrayal biographically of Tolkien's own in, inner working? Oh, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, and I think it's in order to understand Tolkien's writings, in a sense, I think you need to understand that he was an extraordinarily busy man. Mm-hmm. Um, he had four children, uh, and he was very active in his children's lives. Uh, that's, I think, it's really worth saying he was a great father. Mm-hmm. And all of his children in later interviews attested to that. They all speak very highly of uh, their father. He was active in his grandchildren's lives. Wow. Uh, I mean, there's a great anecdote um, by George Sayer of, of George Sayer coming to visit and finding Tolkien on his hands and knees playing toy trains with one of the great-grandchildren. Great oh. Um, you know, going, toot, toot, toot. Oh, look, I'm a tank engine. You know, it, this... This is the great man, right? But yeah. he's playing with his grandchildren, with his great-grandchildren, because that's important, because yeah. that's – it's part of – you know, he's called to be a husband and a father, as, and he's called to be a colleague. And one of the things that struck me in my research over the last few years is 
again and again, his students and his colleagues attested to just how self-giving Tolkien was. Mm. He would always read their manuscripts. He would provide comments. Um, time and again, I would see you know acknowledgments pages for other philological works saying, and many thanks to Professor J.R.R. Tolkien who gave pages of detailed comments and I wouldn't be able to do without him. And yeah. again and again and again. And so he's really, and this is important, he's helping shape the lives and the careers of his students. Um, mm. And so all of this, and he had chronic health problems, and so did his wife Edith. Mm. So he, and then of course there was the war, and they, you know, they they had a garden, and they had chickens, and you know, yeah. and so there's all these things going on, and he had committee meetings and things, and, and taking on extra grading to help pay the bills. So he had a life that was full of many obligations, and I think for Tolkien. I think that passage that you read from Leaf by Nagel captures it well because there's the combination of genuine frustration yeah. of I really want to be working on my art because the art matters. The art is important. I need to do that. But also the recognition that the other things matter. So Tolkien would never be one to say, disregard your responsibilities you know, blow off, you know, your obligations, right. you know, you know, don't let them impose upon you. You must put your art first. Yeah, no. He didn't do that. And as a result, well, he didn't finish probably a lot of things that he would have finished, Yeah. but he did, he was a great father, a great husband, a great colleague, a great friend. Um, so I think that passage from Leaf by Niggle is very deeply biographical in autobiographical in the sense that it really is that constant tension and of course, you know, speaking now for myself, I'm, you know, my full-time job is to teach, but as an academic, part of my work also is to write. But they also always are in tension because yeah. teaching will take up as much time as you let it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's always another student to interact with. There's always another comment you can make on a paper. And but then there's then there's the writing that you need to do. And yeah. it's always always a tension. And well, I think in a way, Tolkien's wisdom is recognizing that you can't. You can't get rid of the tension if you're going to be responsible both to your art and to your other obligations. Yeah, you find out, spoiler alert, if you haven't read this, but you find out that uh, his tree, uh, part of what becomes what becomes part of the tree are all of those things that were um, pulling him aside and doing other things. That uh, Parrish, actually his neighbor, actually contributes to, to the tree. Yeah. Uh, and so all of these all of these tributaries that come in as what seems to be a distraction are necessary for the, the completion and the creation and the, the engine for, for, for doing what, what he's doing. Yeah, and I think Tolkien is, I mean, I, I find him, one of the great things about researching him for the last, uh, I mean, I've been, I've been working with Tolkien for 20, 30 years, um, but really working on this book for seven years and researching his life and his writing is much more much more deeper than ever before. And one of the things that has been just so gratifying is the more I have learned about Tolkien from reading interviews with him, with his family, with his colleagues, with his students, is what a thoroughly good man he was. Hmm. The more I learn about him, not perfect, obviously, and he himself would be the first to admit that he wasn't perfect, yeah. but a thoroughly good, generous-hearted man, a devout Christian, um, and like I said, a good father, a good husband, a good friend, a good colleague, and seeing that and seeing the way that he really did have to kind of fight for his writing time and his art time, because he was also a very talented amateur artist. Um, and seeing that tension, I think, is helpful because sometimes I think writers can romanticize the work of writing and, mm -hmm. they, can, and they can say, oh, well, if I only had the perfect circumstances, if I only had you know, a whole semester off, if I only had a whole week to myself, if I, if I only dot, dot, dot. Well, the truth is, is that there is no perfect circumstances. No. And, you know, sometimes I mean, there's things that come and there are things that go. Like, for instance, the last few weeks, I've done a lot of traveling to speak. So when I'm traveling, I'm not writing. Okay, there's that. But then when I'm back at home, I'm going to have to put myself to my writing. But I've still got laundry to do and emails to answer and papers to grade. There's never going to be a moment. Yeah. And maybe I have a clear week and... I get the flu, you know, yeah. it, it, there's never, there's never the perfect opportunity. Right. You have to just do the work in your life as it comes day by day, butt on the seat, fingers in the keyboard. Mm. And I think Tolkien's a great model for that because, mm -hmm. you know, he, if you think about all of the stuff he had going on in his life, 
actually, he, he did produce an amazing amount of work, even published work during his lifetime. Yeah. You, one gets the false impression, if you're not too familiar with him, that all he did was some wealthy man sitting in his house just coming up with ideas. Like he had a systematic theology in one hand and <laughs> his imagination in the other. He was just going to town with all the time in the world. It wasn't like that at all. No, not at all. No. I mean, even like, you know, the beginnings of the tales, uh, you know, he's, he's thinking things up when he's in trenches. He was in the trenches in yeah, World War One. Yeah, <laughs> And he got trench fever, which uh-huh. probably saved his life, although it damaged his health. Yeah. Uh, so all his life, he was always doing his creation in, in the time that he could make or find amongst his other responsibilities. Uh, it, it's a good pattern, I think. Well, that would bring me to our, we'll kind of wrap up on this thought here, a couple things uh, that I'll let you just kind of go with. Um, the one is briefly uh, Tolkien's idea of sub-creator um, and what it means to be, from Tolkien's perspective, what it means to be a sub-creator. And then lastly, if you would talk a little bit about uh, your contribution to uh, our story of the cosmos and how you see Tolkien's vision in helping us reimagine the universe. So I'll leave you with those two things. Well, Tolkien's, Tolkien's vision of sub-creation really is, is deeply theological. Um, and I think here is where we see the, the most evident connection between Tolkien's faith and his writing. Because he says um, in On Fairy Stories, uh, at the end of that, that essay, he says, you're talking about writing, he says, we make um, because we are made, mm. and we are made in the image of a maker. So he says we make in our derivative mode. You know, we are not original creators. Only God is the original creator. Only he can create out of nothing. Hmm. But we are makers. We in our small way. We are sub-creators. With with what God has given us of primary creation, we can make our little sub-creations. But and he but for him it's not trivial. It's not just a low fun little thing. We make because we are made in the image of God, and God is a maker. And I think that is a deeply important theological statement for the artist because God is the ultimate author. He wrote the story of creation. He wrote the story of history. And God is the ultimate artist. Everything that's beautiful, God made. So our impulse to write, to draw, to paint, to to do music is all a reflection of the divine creative, Hmm. creative image in us. And so for Tolkien, really... To talk about, for instance, literary gifts as God-given is very literal. Mm. You know, we make in our manner and our derivative mode because we are made and made in the image and likeness of a maker. Those are yeah. Tolkien's words. And what you guys and what I learned at HBU, I mean, I was in my late forties when I went through the program, so I was a whole, I was a teacher trying to be a student again. <laughs> it was very hard. <laughs> but what you guys did, even at my old age, I say old age, but. Even for somebody in his late 40s, what you guys did for me was what education is all about. You see something in somebody and you draw it out of them. You draw the gift out. And uh, my gift was sort of languishing under a basket. I love to write, but it wasn't going anywhere. Um, and so the HBU program really brought out, drew out of me the, the gift. I love to write. I mean, you set me on fire to write. And it was just really wonderful. Um, so I totally resonate with that. That's a wonderful thing that part of the way we glorify God is to... To, to act in accordance with the gifts he's given us to create things. That's just what we do. Absolutely. And um, so how, I know Tolkien loved, because in, in Lord of the Rings, there's starlight everywhere. There's the light of Galadriel. Mm. Sam and Frodo realize that they're part of the same tale that's gone on forever and ever and ever. Uh, and there's starlight and moonlight and sunlight. And Gollum hates the light of the moon. It hurts his, his mm. eyes, you know. But so there's there's this radiance, the, a glow, um, uh, about Lord of the Rings that's very cosmic in its in its luminescence. And uh, I think that's you brought that out even more so in your essay in our book about um, the universe. So what is what is Tolkien's attitude about uh, the heavens, cosmology, and cosmos? Because he, he, he lived at a time where there were a lot of discoveries being made about the universe. What, what Do you have any specifics about his background in terms of the universe and astronomy? Well, he was interested in astronomy. And uh, in fact, his, his daughter Priscilla recalls that at one time he subscribed to a journal of, of astronomy. So he was interested in that. Um, and and that's, not, that's not a line of research that I followed up greatly, but he was interested. And you can see that, for instance, in The Lord of the Rings, he's very precise about the phases of the moon mm-hmm. um, in the Hobbit, the whole idea of Durin's day and you know the astronomical conjunctions of of the seasons and the phases of the moon. Um, he worked these things out in 
extremely careful detail, and there's been some folks who've, who've explored that, some astronomers actually, who've explored those elements in his, his fiction, and he, he was very attentive to those things. He cared, and partly it was his precision. He cared about everything. Yeah, in great detail. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. he, but he was genuinely interested in, um, in the heavens, in, in stars and planets, uh, in, in those sorts of things. And, uh, and when we look, you know, in my essay for uh, Story of the Cosmos, you know, we have in, in say, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, we've got some of the, the details of, of cosmology, the way it plays out, the phases of the moon, you know, during, mm-hmm. the, during the, the events. But one of the things he does in the Silmarillion is he gives us a creation narrative. So he's kind of stepping back and giving us the biggest picture, you know, how did the, cre- how did the cosmos come to be? And that's and one of the really interesting things about the Silmarillion is that it basically gives us Genesis. Mm. It's his version of Genesis okay. um, at the beginning of his of his mythology of his legendarium. And it's interesting because, in in a sense, it can be interesting to compare this to the way that that C.S. Lewis, you know, does things in in the Chronicles of Narnia, because Tolkien is telling the story of creation. And he's telling it in a way that's completely consistent theologically mm-hmm. with his Christian faith, but he's not allegorizing it. He's he's telling it in another mode. So it's just in a way, if I can draw the parallel, Aslan doesn't stand for Christ. Aslan is Christ in another in mm-hmm. another world. Yeah. And no, Jesus Christ was not a lion. He was a man. So we, but in Narnia we have yeah. Aslan. He is the Christ in Narnia. And so that we have, in a way, the same thing happening with the Silmarillion, because in that story, creation happens through music. Yeah. And in Genesis, in Scripture, it's, you know, God spoke, um, mm-hmm. and he speaks uh, the cosmos into existence. You know, through the word, all things were made. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Tolkien's trying to get at how, what is that like? How do we experience it? Um, and he he kind of refracts it and he gives us well this is this is how creation would be like if it happened through music yeah and so we do again we have the one god the creator um Iluvatar, who is the one who creates um we have in his creation story there's more active participation of the angelic powers um the valar mm-hmm. than than we know of in you know in in the in the bible um but he's not. This is not a Gnostic sort of secret kind of God, thing. Yeah, no. No, he's because it's very clear that the the Creator God is the one who has made all of this, and He has made the Valar, and, and He is giving them the opportunity to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense, they are sub creators, just at a very early at a very early stage. And it's it's Iluvatar, the one the one God who says eventually, "Aya, let these things be," mm-hmm. and then all the things that they have imagined come into real existence. Yeah. So we have a, a theologically orthodox understanding of God as the creator um, and the way that he doesn't allow evil to disrupt the pattern but but responds to it and you know folds it in. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, again, that's theologically completely orthodox. But he's imagining it through music. And I think this is, again, this is what he's doing with recovery. Because I think especially if someone has read the Genesis account or heard it in Sunday school, you know, 27 gajillion times, yeah, 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 and on the first day and on the second day, boring. Mm -hmm. Or just you stop hearing it. You hear a story enough, you just stop hearing it. Mm -hmm. And and by story, I mean account. I'm I'm not saying it's fictional. It's not. um, so I think by putting it into music and having the image of the fugue and the interleaving um, voices and the way that the you know Melkor tries to disrupt it, but then you know um, Uluvatar doesn't allow that. I think he he allows us to to kind of look then at Genesis and and kind of sit back and say, wow, actually that's that's pretty awesome, and that that's really amazing and beautiful and. And yeah. here, oh, God really is the creator of all of that. So we have that process of recovery, and it's the strangeness of it, the different names, mm. um, the music, the very strangeness of it is precisely what allows us to see the real thing more clearly. It's a reintroduction to something that is so familiar to us. So that's the <clears throat> the benefit of 
going back into the mythical imagination to to re-see things. Yeah. Really. I mean, um, it, in, uh, in On Fairy Stories, Tolkien uses the metaphor of a window that's gotten all grimy. He says, mm-hmm. we need to clean our windows. Right. And he talks particularly about the way that we can um, let possessiveness blind us to what a thing really is. Mm. And I think with the scriptures, um, I think for Christians sometimes that can be the case. We get so used to, like, these are our things, and, 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 and we're going to, you know... This is mine, and I'm, and I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna share it with people, but I understand it, and I've got it. But have we really looked at the strangeness and wonder of it? Yeah, and and experienced it anew. Well, and that's felt the power. That's the ring is possessiveness. Yeah, it's not nuclear power. It's not political power. It's very personal to us. It's not just some world dominating evil trying to rule the world. This is our heart, in a sense. That's why. Every time I go back and read The Ring, I'm like, ooh, that's, that's more like me than I thought. You know, it's not a distant political Russian versus American or it's nothing, nothing like that. It's more of a, a sense of possession because you look at Gollum mm. and Smeagol, who was possessed by possessiveness. And it, it just, the light of nature hurt his eyes. Do you think, just in closing here, I, I mean, I think... Um, but you have a little bit more engagement and experience with this. It, it just seems like well, I became a Christian 25 years ago as an adult, and I was never discipled in a creation of the importance of creation. It wasn't important. You never heard about it. It was a, basically a few verses in Romans and then John 3.16 and, you know, do you know Jesus and door-to-door evangelism, and, and everything just seemed to be focused on a very attenuated gospel story that did not have any real answer for um, creation. I talked to an atheist on a podcast a couple falls ago when I was still in the program, I think. And uh, he he had left the faith. He grew up in a Baptist church. He'd left the faith. He said he, and I can understand this, he said he had all the answers to life's biggest questions when he was 18 years old. And But it was it was packaged in such a way, you know, like you said, familiarity in Sunday school, and I can do all the Bible verses and win all the Iwana awards and everything. But no engagement with how, and so as soon as he encounters a science with a much broader appreciation for creation. He just left he, almost immediately. He was just prepared to leave the faith on the fact that, that his faith never engaged creation. And so how important is it for the church today to engage creation in this uh, argument that we have with the unbelieving culture? Well, I think it's hugely important. It's, it's it, because... The whole thing is that, you know, because the Christian faith is true, we're making a statement that this is the way reality works. Mm. We're not just saying it's a nice story that works for me. No. Honestly, like I, and I, you know, your, your listeners may not realize that I also am an adult convert. Um, yes. You know, came to the faith as, as an adult from, from a very hostile atheism. And, you know, if our faith doesn't account for everything, then it's a waste of time. Mm. If it's just oh, it makes me feel better, what good is that? Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it might make someone feel better, but that's not why it's true. Yeah, you um, don't do it for the benefit. If you're yeah. just trying to do it to make you happy, there's plenty of other things that will make you happy. No. Yeah, and this whole thing, like, you know, the way of the cross, um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, not so, that's not so touchy-feely, you know? No, no. Uh, so I, I think that people can become, especially people who have grown up in the faith and have just gotten so used to it they've yeah. they've and and i think particularly in american culture american culture tries to compartmentalize religion um right. and it and it does it so successfully that and i see this in my students because i see so many students from so many different backgrounds coming into my classes and sharing their stories and sharing their backgrounds and so i, I kind of have a lot of data of looking at what mm-hmm. you know serious christians come in they want to study apologetics and and they they say well this is where i this is what i came from and this is this the obstacles i had in, in getting here even but we have this tendency to just reduce the faith to the minimum possible number of things yeah. and as if that would make it more believable. But that's the kind of the lie of modernity. That is. Uh, it's been tried. Yeah. You know, that's the, that was the progressive Christian experiment. Well, let's see if we can reduce the number of things to the lowest number to believe. And that's what, uh, that's what uh, mid-century fundamentalism was. What are, the, what are the essentials? And let's just focus on those. Let's, uh, and, and so it was a distilled compartmentalized, uh, very much breathing and ingesting the air, the spirit of the air of reductionism, of, of empiricism, verificationism, uh, which, of course, Lewis and Tolkien lived through that idea of the, the rise and the collapse of logical positivism. <laughs> um, but it's unsustainable. Yeah. It really is. And, and, in, and part of it is that there's a difference between 
there's different there's different things that go on here because on the one hand, I mean, I teach in an ecumenical program, mm-hmm. and and that's and that's a really great environment to teach in, and we have students from all different you know branches of Protestantism, you know, Catholic students, Orthodox students, you know, I'm Catholic, but you know, many of the most of the faculty are Protestant, obviously. So we we do have to say, well, what are the what are the minimum basic things that we all agree on? Yeah. Um, and we agree, basically, the Apostles' Creed. So in in one sense, it's valuable to know what the non negotiables are. Absolutely, know. absolutely. But it does matter that you believe more than that. Like mm-hmm. you, you, we work together on the basis of, of of that. But one day, you know, in the presence of God, we'll all <laughs> we'll yeah. all agree fully. But further than that. Our faith has to have implications, um, and so what we believe has to touch every aspect of our lives. It has to impact our personal lives, obviously. It has to impact, for instance, our purchasing habits, and that's yeah. something that really a lot of Americans, and I encounter myself amongst that, that's a hard, you know, am I willing to pay a little bit more? So am I willing to, for instance, buy organic milk so that my farmer friends can actually make a living wage? Yeah. And I had to, I, I realized that if I was going to, you know, say, oh, yes, to my farmer friends, I want you to make a living wage, but I'm still buying the cheapest milk. No, I need to take, I need to take responsibility and do my bit, you know, now buy organic milk. So things like that, or to answer, get back to your original question, the environment. Um, and this makes me very angry um, because environmentalism has become a kind of dirty word amongst yeah, a lot of Christians. Yeah, and it shouldn't be because you know, it has gotten, in a sense, hijacked by radical, you know, secular groups. But why were they able to hijack it? Because the Christians abandoned it. We gave it up. We gave it up, and they ran with it. Yeah. And they ran with it with a radically anti-human attitude. Mm-hmm. But we we gave it up. But right there in Genesis, God gives stewardship to Adam and Eve. Right, right. You know, and they're to steward creation. So yeah. we are called to be good stewards of it. And that does not mean that we get to pave the earth to do whatever we want with it. No. We need to use it responsibly. And, it, you know, that does involve cutting down trees and building buildings. But it means doing it when we need to, doing it respectfully, yeah. caring for the environment, having national parks, having clean air, having clean water. These things are part of what God has commanded us to do. Yeah. I have a book I'm starting uh, soon called King Sequoia. It was about how a tree started the National Park Service. Um, I always find it interesting that Jesus was judged on a place called the pavement. <laughs> it is kind of fitting. It's sterile, yeah. cold. And the thing is, a lot of people today, they, I mean, nature, God, God made trees. God made all this creation. This is, you know a way that we can engage with, with creation very directly because we build buildings, but God makes trees. Yeah. And so when we're out there, you know, you know, we make gardens to have trees, but we're not the ones who made the flowers to put in the garden. Right. So when we're out there experiencing the natural world in an unmediated way, we are engaging with God's handiwork in a pretty direct way. Yeah. Um, now, mm-hmm. we, we, it's not, again, here I have to, you know, Point out, it's not a substitute. We're not saying we should all just, you know, become hug trees. Yeah, yeah. and it's not a substitute. Natural law, um, common grace is, is very important, but it's not a substitute for revelation. We yeah, need absolutely. both, right. but we we go so quickly to either or when we need both mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. So we need to have buildings, well built buildings, mm-hmm. good architecture. Good architecture, please. Let's have more good architecture. You know, things that are beautiful and and yeah, the useful. modern tendency to put your church in a warehouse and set up chairs and four walls with no windows and yeah, they should go back and read the book of you know, say Exodus and Leviticus and see how much attention God puts to decoration. Great in the detail arts. in the temples. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. God absolutely. cares about beauty. Absolutely. But I think you know this. This we've we've imbibed a spirit of utilitarianism with mm. regard to the natural world, and too many Christians have just kind of accepted that, but that's not a Christian idea. No. And so things like preserving species from going extinct, you know, do we have to be responsible in balancing human needs versus animal needs? Yes, we do. But that doesn't mean that humans have the only say. Right. You know, God made the little fishes and, you know, things and they, you know, we need to look out for them too because they can't look out for themselves. Well, it's like what you said about uh, Bilbo and Frodo and their attitude toward Gollum. They don't just kill it for just just to kill it. I exactly. mean, there's a 
There, I mean, if, if human beings didn't, you know, pr- practice animal husbandry, we'd be run over by deer and <laughs> insects would be in our hair and our house, you know. So there's, a, there's a, a necessity that we play a part in that chain of, 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 of maintaining species population. But you're right. I think Lewis touched on it in The Empty Universe. When we empty ourselves, when we try to control nature, we find out we've been controlled by nature. That radical environmentalism is now controlling us, and we're we're giving deference to creation without any reference to ourselves. Uh, And all the creation, the trees and the fish and the cows come first, and to heck with everybody else. But I think when you empty the universe of its divine mandate and purpose, uh, then it can be your God. It can be whatever you want, and it becomes a sort of a deified sense. But... When we try to control the universe, I think, and I think that's what's wonderful about Tolkien's imagination and Lewis's imagination, is understanding and respecting creation for what it is, something to be appreciated, not possessed, um, maintained. Uh, We are given divine mandate over these things, but part of that divine mandate is to national parks, leaving trees alone, leaving the fish alone, you know, let them do it, let whales be whales and things like that. Uh, without going to the extreme for our acquisitiveness and possessiveness. Exactly. I mean, we can look, for instance, at, you know, the Shire is a great model of that. Because Absolutely, the Shire yes. is farmland. You know, yeah. here we have, you know, here we have the hobbits. You know, they're not, we have the elves who live quite more like in nature, but that's the elves. We have the hobbits and they're harvesting and growing and planting. And they're obviously making use of nature and husbanding it and and you know harvesting and building and they mm-hmm. have mills and things so here we we have a picture of use of the natural world and then we have you know when saruman comes in we have a picture of the abuse of the natural yeah. world where things are wantonly cut down but then you know when they come back and there's the scouring of the shire we have a restoration not to wilderness but to renewed growth and responsible beauty. cultivation yeah with a purpose in mind and of course tolkien's also well aware that nature can kill you Absolutely. you know look at the the passage of the mountains and you know, he's he's not a sentimentalist about nature mm-hmm. no. <laughs> things will eat you in the yeah. woods you know rocks right. will fall on you yeah. so i think he has a he has a very a, a nuanced and really integrated approach to nature that is a truly christian vision of it i think yeah. and, and that starts with uh that starts with creation i mean I mean, I look at you can sum up the gospel in a sense that good news, bad news, good news. I'm right. I mean, Genesis one and two, up till three are one and two is good. Everything is good. Genesis three is bad, and that's redeeming the bad, and then it's good news again. You know, but but there is good news first, and all that God has made is good. So, Holly, thank you so much for taking time today. It's oh, it's my pleasure. Fantastic. It's so much fun to talk about these things, yes. and it was a treat to contribute to the book. And yes. I'm very excited about the book. Um, I think the story of the cosmos is going to be a, just an a excellent book and We're very valuable. very excited about it. I get nervous that it's going to be a flop, but then I get nervous it's going to be a success, too. <laughs> <laughs> it will be what it will be. <laughs> right, right. So briefly, before you go, tell everybody where they can find out more about what you're doing and uh, where they can get a maybe a little bit about HBU or about your website, your personal work, anything you want to leave us with? Well, if we've talked a lot about the uh, HBU Apologetics Program, Master of Arts in Apologetics, um, especially the cultural track, and uh, I, if anyone's interested, they can, um, and especially the online, that's what I teach in. You can live anywhere in the world and be in our program, and you can go to hbu.edu slash maa online. How easy is that? I'll put the link in the description below the podcast. Yeah. And then for my work, um, my writing, my speaking engagements, um, and you know the, the, my new Tolkien book um, uh, that's coming out uh, dealing with Tolkien's modern reading, um, uh, you can go to my website, which is hollyordway.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Holly, and I hope you have a wonderful... What are you talking about here tonight? What is exactly the on tap? Philosophy and the arts. Well, I'm giving a talk on Tolkien and the function of fantasy, and then I'm giving a talk on um, metaphor and language and how it's important for metaphor to be used for communicating meaning. Awesome. Well, welcome to Weatherford. Thank you for <laughs> chatting with me. It's so wonderful to have you, and we will, uh, uh, we will be in touch, and maybe we can talk again when the book comes out. Excellent. I Thanks, look forward Holly. to it. Okay. Okay.